think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 37 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 38th episode. Uh, I'm Laurent Carboneau. We only do this, our name, our naming, like half the time. That is true, we we're, forget a lot. We're very inconsistent with this. And that is a Tian Renville. <laughs> and uh, we are going to be talking this week about actually quite a few things. It's been a, it's been a pretty pretty busy news week, considering it's the first session, uh, first week of the new sitting of Parliament, uh, which is, you know, always always a fun time in Ottawa. It's been a beautiful, beautiful week here. Uh, it actually hasn't been too bad. No. A lot of sun. Anyway, so uh, Etienne wanted to start us off today talking about uh, how the worst three press conferences of the year have already happened. Yeah, I I think that's safe to say. Um, (laughs) It'll be hard to top these three. It really will, yeah. Um, Regrettably, they're all in uh, or from conservatives. Yep. Um, In in no particular order, I think the most obvious one was the one that everyone was talking about uh, a week and a half ago now. How Um, time flies. Which would have been Patrick Brown's press conference at Queen's Park where he was flanked by reporters and no staff as he... Fled, away. fled down, I think it's four sets of stairs. Yeah, I have to say this for the Queen's Park. It, it is a building that is difficult to escape from people in a straight line. Yes. Yeah. The, there's there's something to be said about planning where you have your press conference and how yeah. you are going to leave if you are not taking questions. Yeah, because, I mean, like, in, in a center block... Like, you can duck down any number of corridors that hook up back to the main ones. Like, you can... It's a labyrinth. Like, I've had to dodge the Minotaur in there, like, six <laughs> times. Like, just going to go drop off an order paper question or something. And, I mean, the other thing is... It, the the other thing that facilitates it in center block is uh, security, frankly. Oh, absolutely. Um, that the House of Commons security... There are areas where members of the press gallery are not designated to go. Yeah. And or the so, public. Or, or, or the public, Queen's yeah. Park, really, once you're in there, you're in there. So like, actually, Osama bin Laden could just stroll <laughs> in and, like, you know, go have a Counter-Strike tournament or whatever he does. I've actually never been to uh, Queen's Park. I've only been recently. Um, but a, an example of how this is used in the House of Commons is that the classic um, scene that you'll see for everyone scrumming, literally everyone from, you know, the beginning of time, um, is the doors right beside the government lobby. Yeah, because the, the cabinet ministers will come down from the stairs from the cabinet room which emerges right next to the entrance to the House of Commons, which verges right onto the government lobby. You have maybe 15 feet less. of hallway to get through. S- substantially yeah. less than that, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Because the press typically aren't allowed. Media typically isn't allowed onto the third floor. The liberals have made some concessions there, although there were some weird stories last week that people were making, I think, a little too much about. Um, in As that, they In that Phil Pott and some others said, we're not supposed to speak to media on the third floor now, and... Some people took that as a sign of something dramatic, but it seems more or less just like a housekeeping measure. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you come down the stairs, and it's literally like a five-foot span where the media waits, and you do your quick scrum, and as soon as you're ready to go, into the door, and the Hazard Common Security will prevent any, you know... Riff-raff. Any riff-raff from entering. Yes, and journalists, you are riff-raff. Um, so there's certainly Patrick Brown's. Uh, number two would probably be... Doug Ford Doug and Ford. His, uh, his mother's basement, as much was made about that. Can you expand on what happened there a little bit in the context for it? Um, so I think it's just Doug Ford was... Who is Doug ha- Ford for the four people in Canada <laughs> who don't know? Doug Ford, um, brother of... The infamous and dearly the, departed the, Rob. The late Rob Ford. Yes. Uh, do you remember when we met Doug Ford at Manning Yes, last I do. Year? That was quite... A, I shook his hand, as I recall. Yes, that was very funny. But, I forgot about that. But what's funny about that is, did you willingly shake his hand, or did you sort of just glance at him and he like yep. came over He's and was that, yeah. very alpha, very assertive, and sort of was really working the room? Yep. He certainly does have a presence um, and sort of the... Very much the sort of the television... A persona of what a politician would be, and car dealer, I think, is or or car dealer. Yeah, you you glance at him the wrong way, and suddenly he's coming. He's giving you a business card. He's introducing himself. Yes. Um, so Doug Ford announcing his run for PC leadership. Um, as of today, I think he is only the he is one of two now. I think Christine Elliott has formally announced her so has, run. So is Carolyn Maroney. No, I think she's formally announcing tomorrow. But I think oh, sort okay. of you know. I think everyone can see the writing on the wall there. The cat is out of the bag there. Yes, let's um, talk about that. Let's actually talk about the leadership race a bit later. So is it expect? It's expected to be those three and perhaps some other. Ontario MPP, yes, whose name I don't know. So, at the la- when the last we spoke, uh, Vic Fideli had been named interim leader, I believe. Correct. Or perhaps shortly thereafter. And it was widely expected that he would run. 
and then it emerged that he would not, uh, and in fact that he would uh, be focusing on the rot within he, the PC party. Yeah, he'd also been very coy about whether or not he was interim leader or leader. Uh, at some yes, point, denying, yeah. denying the use of the word interim, um, as if he was going to be... You know, the leader for the foreseeable future when these decisions weren't yet made. Yeah, there was a very fluid state at some point there. Um, but I think it's more or less been resolved. And now he is, you know, taking the grinder to the rust within the party. Indeed. Um, much res- The rot, as he put it. Uh, yeah. I, I Though, just, of course, that's going to appear in like every liberal attack ad now. So thanks for that. I just used grinder to rust as a... Uh, as a throwback to my, one of my, one a, of my early summer jobs. As a good oil patch boy. <laughs> yeah. As a good early oil patch job. Um, so there was a lot made about sort of those comments and whether or not saying, like, there's, you know, tons of rot within the party is a good idea. Yeah, it's going to be an attack, guys. Mm. Yeah, Kathleen Wynn probably really enjoyed that. But uh, one thing, too, about Victor Deli is that he always wears yellow ties. Yes. That's not really, like, apropos of anything, but it's just very striking because it's a very unusual color for ties strangely i've always uh i've always sort of mocked the ndp and the greens for having well more the so partisan the, tie colors yeah for having the shittiest partisan tie color by far i mean what are we like you guys took red and blue what are we supposed to do see well in you the, have green actually isn't that bad of a tie see, color in normal countries gray you, can you guys be gray oh, yeah in normal countries what happens is that the well not kind of the u.s because that's obviously not, not a normal country but in normal countries, what happened was that any liberal parties that happened to be red were completely overtaken by social democratic or socialist parties in the 20th century, and then we got to steal the red back. Uh, but here, we stuck with orange because the liberals never died. So, huge bummer. And now, like, the liberal democrats are stuck with yellow in the UK. And mo- that's actually yellow is the color of liberal parties throughout most of continental Europe. Yellow better than better than orange in terms of tie color. I mean, it's certainly visually striking. I have one orange tie. Yeah. I think I've worn it once. I have an orange tie I do not believe I've ever worn. Maybe once. Maybe once. Yeah. Sorry, menswear distraction here. But what was the third press conference again? Um, so the third was... So two, two of these are from uh, Barrie, Ontario. Or, you know, residents of Barrie, Ontario. So Barrie, you were on notice. Um, and all... And I guess three are from... The Toronto slash GTA. I don't know. Does Barry count Barry as GTA? Does, I don't. Th- I not. don't think Barry counts. <laughs> okay, as GTA. from from within a hundred kilometers of the GTA, um, giving yourself quite a lot of leeway here. So, so there is quite a concentration of horrible press conferences in uh, from from people in that area. Um, the third one, of course, is Alex Nuttall's uh, press conference. Pre- I, I conference might perhaps be too generous of a term for availability, it. perhaps exposure. Uh, <laughs> take your pick. Yeah, um, held very rapidly in the House of Commons. Alex, not all, of course, the Conservative MP for Oro Medonte. Yeah, I probably said that wrong, but whatever. Too bad. So the background here is that not all <laughs> is very good friends with uh, Patrick Brown. Yes, um, both both them boys love hockey. They do. They are. Can I say meathead caucus? No. Okay. So occasionally I will hear Jock Caucus. I prefer Meathead. Uh, more so than Meathead. Um, but uh, so Alex Nuttall came into sort of the foyer or just outside the foyer, um, which is where we're talking about, and ran up to reporters and said, on background. Yeah. This thanks for w- coming to my on background press conference, basically. <laughs> I am not backing anyone in the race as of yet, and uh, my constituents think that Patrick Brown's dismissal was an inside job. Yes. Which, whew. Well, I mean, for like. Was quite a grenade to drop and then take no questions and flee the scene. So, one thing about this inside job thing is that, like, how could it not be an inside job if it's a process interior to the PC party to begin with? Like, what's the situation there where it's not an inside job? I don't really understand the allegation he's making, <laughs> to be honest with you. I think you're being a little pedantic. I mean, maybe, but, like, um, I think does he mean that it was a setup? That the the, the elites, as he put it, of the party have uh, yes. somehow forced Patrick Brown to cruise high school girls? So let's let's point out some of the problems in uh in both the manner and execution of a statement. Um, first of all, as Laurent alluded to, when you go, uh, when you're speaking with media and you go on background, the concept of on background is that media will discuss it. They won't necessarily quote you, quote you on it. Yeah. You know, it fleshes out their ideas and maybe feeds into their article a little bit. Yeah. And uh, the way you don't do this is by running up to a bunch of cameras <laughs> and yelling, this is on background. <laughs> Because here's a tip for any sort of media work you may ever have to do. 
is that if you go into a conversation thinking that it's on background or not for attribution or whatever off the record, make sure the journalist you are talking to also understands that. And if they do not, do not have that conversation. Very, very simple. Yes. The, the In fact, just don't in general. The but. most fundamental premise of working with media, um, because a lot of it is sort of honor and reputation based, yeah. is getting them to agree to on background, off the record. Um, yeah, you do not declare that something is on background or off the record. How, how you want to be quoted, qu- please quote me as, you know, senior official um xyz you you can make these caveats senior liberals it's sort of like a scaramucci i think scaramucci yes. um sort of infamously did this as well i actually really hope that the mooch gets taught as like a just like they just take every day that he was press secretary and they just or director of communications rather director, director of, of communications. communications i hope they take every one of the 10 days he was director of communications and just you go through day by day <laughs> as a whole class for like here's what the mooch did wrong here <laughs> hour by hour breakdown of his day yeah 24 7 i would love that it would be fascinating ken burns could do a documentary um, the mooch <laughs> <laughs> so so to finish this off uh yeah alex nettle ran in said that um he said you know 29 unelect or 28 uh toronto elites. elites of course in reference i presume to the member to members of the OP, uh, Ontario PC caucus, caucus? Yeah. who are not or mostly maybe, from the EGA. or maybe some of the directors slash maybe. party officials. But there are, I believe, twenty eight MPPs. Yeah, I don't know. PCs, that, that's sort of why I would think so. But yeah. there's like two from the GTA. Yeah, um, representing zero point one percent. And both of them won by elections, I believe. The Ontario PC party. Yeah. Um, whatever um we'll see one of the interesting numbers that came out this week or more recently um fidelity revealed there was something like i think one hundred and twenty thousand. yeah down from the two hundred thousand. down from two hundred thousand at the perhaps peak of the leadership but i think that number was still being maintained um yes until recently it's been drastically revised now that's still a very impressive number i should say that that's higher than higher or about equal to both the conservatives and the ndp typically float at about 100,000 yeah and change yeah I, I, it is it is a a very high number yeah. um the reason for you know almost a, a 50% drop in membership is obviously when people do membership drives um and you want them to, you know vote in your membership no one buys more than a one year membership there like there are people who stick around but the attrition rate is very, very, very high on new members from leadership contests. Yeah, because people want to vote and they don't want to join, you yeah. know, riding associations and all this other Which stuff. Which is a shame. I think people should, but, you know, oh well. Full, fully support that. Fully support, you know, further engagement. But for the majority of people swayed to vote on the leadership, they're saying, you know... They don't have necessarily a, a strong extracurricular interest in uh, partisan yeah. politics. Yeah. Which is fair. It's not for everyone. So, there you have it. What's next? He also, I just want to say this because it was hilarious, but I believe he referred to the the premier of the party of Ontario oh, at yes. one point in his press conference there, and it really made me laugh. That, that was on background, though, so don't... That was on background, you're right. Don't, you're right. don't tell anyone. You're right. Uh, so that brings us to our next topic, which is, uh, I think it's fair to say people have been waiting with bated breath for the last week and a half here in Ottawa about a news item that's been sort of expected to drop, but never has yet. Uh, and I will let Etienne take this. Um, yeah, so talking around this one is obviously very sensitive. Um, Paul Wells has referred to it as the thing. The thing. Um, it's, it's been sort of alluded to on Twitter over the past few weeks. Um, it, it all sort of stems from Warren Kinsella's War Room blog piece. Um, For those who don't know, Warren Kinsella was a strategic advisor to Jean Chrétien in the 90s, who has since basically dined out on that job for the last, like, 25 years. <laughs> Good for him. I mean, look, much respect if you can do, eat out on your time as a political staffer 25 years ago. Like, good work. But, yeah. Sorry, uh, Warren. Yeah. <laughs> Please don't sue us. Um, so, Warren Kinsella dropped a blog piece in which he said that you know, there's affidavit signed against a very senior federal liberal. Very, very powerful man. Very, very powerful man. 
men, but I, I think yeah, he's I think also he was a little really more specific with a very powerful federal liberal. Yes. And it didn't take, you know, a genius to put these cards together and presume who he's talking about. Indeed. Um, it has been the talk of the town, you could say. And it has been the talk of the town, and there have been, of course, other unsubstantiated rumors that have gone around. And this has sort of manifested itself on Twitter by people not wanting to talk directly about it because of... Um, I don't know, because of perhaps the allegations involved or the potential to make allegations and libel and defamation, all of these things. Yeah. No one wants and to get so, sued, basically. And so people have been very coy about it. As have we. Um, in the last minute and a <laughs> half or so. <laughs> yes. Um, interestingly, though, in, in what I remember from sort of journalism law, when it comes to defamation, I, I've heard this on Candleland, where they'll talk about someone and they'll say, well, we can't say his name, but Google this, this, and this, and then you'll you'll figure it out. That's absolutely not a defense. It's absolute trash. Um, if you can, if a reasonable person can identify who you're talking about, then you may as well you're, you're, made, you're you may on, as well be holding the sign. You're you're on yeah. the hook. I remember the question on my final exam being about this and being like, uh. You identify in a newspaper that, you know, the guy in the red bathing suit who goes to the pool at 7 a.m. on Mondays is a pedophile, then guess what? You're probably on the hook for defamation. Yeah. Um, all of this is to say that sort of, you know, these rumors have been floating around and you'll see a lot on Twitter. Um, obviously, nothing has, has been proven or even publicly alleged. Um, but this is, you know, something that is happening. You're, are you going to say anything more than that? I don't. I don't know. Okay. If you, if well, you, to, I, to quote my, my, I think what I think we can we can say we have heard through 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 rumor. So we'll treat this as rumor, and we're not going to say anything about the allegations or anything. But that the Toronto Star is working on a story. Yeah, Brian Brian Lilly um, strongly insinuated that. Um, he's tweeted about this several times, and he added the Toronto Star yeah. and accused them of potentially sitting on. I don't, think, story. I don't think he understands how people want to sell these papers work. <laughs> <laughs> Just uh, going to throw that out there. Um, so, yeah, that yeah, so that's the thing. Sure. Let's, yeah. let's leave it there. Okay. So the weekly guillotine, uh, people who have... Is this uh, a segment now? Yeah, I guess. Well, I think it will be for the foreseeable future. People who have fallen to... Um, to allegations of, of misconduct, either sexual or non-sexual, just misconduct, really. Uh, not a bad thing, just basically purging of the, the terrible bosses, so not, not the worst thing. Purging so, or investigation, perhaps. Or investigation. Um, so, the first <coughs> is Elizabeth May, leader of the Green Party, MP for Sanders Gold Violence, uh, who, in a piece in the Star, was it was alleged slash revealed that she has been a, a I think it's fair to say, a terrible boss. Uh, she yelled at people, sort of browbeaten, um, been just generally hard to work with. Uh, you, you want to throw anything on anyone on the fire here? Like, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, all of those things. And so she came out, um, or the party issued a press release in response, saying they they really took the gendered angle to it. They said oh, it was a very, very, very bad press release. Um, it, I'll put it that way. It, it was, was a horrible press release, yeah. but they they opted to take you know the gendered defense to say. Um, you wouldn't be saying this about a male <coughs> yes. boss. And it's like, well, yeah, you would. <laughs> and so there's the tension of, you know, how much... Um, it's, it's sort of the bossy versus assertive or yeah. what, no, whatever mean, the contrasting adjectives that getting people Getting to put screaming are. matches with staffers and telling them to repaint your office or that they haven't repainted your office to your satisfaction is, like, I think probably a step beyond bossy slash assertive and into just abusive. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think this is one of the areas where we really need to be careful about how the gender defense is used. Yes. Um, because, I mean, perhaps people are um, more will put up with a little bit more from male boss, but the behavior as alleged... Is unexcusable. Is unexcusable, yeah. male or female. Yeah. Um, thinking about this, like, general workplace harass or harassment being non-sexual harassment or abuse... Yeah. Um, I think is something that is prevalent on the Hill. Definitely. Um, as prevalent, perhaps, as sexual harassment. Um, and so... You know, when one of these things comes to mind... Almost certainly more so. There are certainly a lot of names that come to fore, and a lot of people, we would refer to them as refugees, i.e. the staffers who leave the, the offices yeah. of the more or less the crazy MPs, the MPs that know... Oh, there, there are people who are notorious for going, like, just burning through staff. Yeah. 
And so, again, these are sort of the things that are rumored. And when people, um, you find out people work for that MP, you're like, oh, I'm so, I'm so sorry. Yeah. Um, and I think there is a lot of leeway given to people uh, who have worked in those offices being like, like treating them like refugees, being like, okay, we'll, we'll hire you. We'll, we'll yeah, yeah. come, come get shelter. Um, I, I can think of several of my friends who have worked for MPs who are notorious for being yeah. sort of off the wall. Yeah. They, they, they happen. And I, I think, you know, they're, they're everywhere. And I, I think, so we, it's, it's very obvious we have to separate this sort of abuse from sexual harassment because yeah. they're, you know, so, rural, I mean, like, they're, they're separate circles on the Venn diagram. Yeah, for sure. But I think, you know, this is, it's a labor issue, much like I, sexual harassment in many ways is also a labor issue on the Hill. Uh, and that involves, you know, work, you know, bosses using their power to bully or abuse their workers. And that's just, it's not okay. And uh, the NDP has a staff union. Uh, I don't think any of the other parties do, to my knowledge. Um uh, that can be a good way to have some sort of recourse or independent processes where you don't have to rely on HR, which works for the boss, or the whip, who also works for the boss in, in a very real way. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, that's a way to go if you're if you're a staffer and uh, want to unionize. Perhaps that'd be a thing worth exploring. Um, and if you're a worker in general, maybe you should explore unionizing. Let, let me call my, <laughs> my my friends on the hill and pitch pitch that to them. Yeah, well, we can get the, give them your uh, your scholarship essay you wrote for UFCW. <laughs> <laughs> another, we'll have to we'll have to read that on air someday. Someday it's too good. Time. It's too good. Um, so yeah, all that to say that um, you know, abuse knows no party banner, and uh, you know, it's uh, knows no gender either. Yeah, and I, I think it'll be interesting um, if, if more of these stories come out. I, I think a lot of people will um, sort of, a lot of people jump to say like, oh, well, you know, that's not that big of a deal. And should we re- really be airing this dirty laundry from workplaces? Yeah. I think in, you know, many cases, yes. I think as a constituent... It is important for people to know what their MP is actually like in Ottawa. Yeah, and you know, there's an old cliche, really, on the Hill that you know people aren't elected because they're good managers, and they're not. But at the same time, that doesn't let them off the hook for being awful managers either. So, if your MP, you know, is nice to everyone's face, and by by all accounts, Elizabeth May is very nice in social interactions, um, but social interactions and people defending Elizabeth May based purely on social interactions, I don't think really have well, a leg yeah, to stand I mean, on. I, I met Elizabeth May at a function once and she shook my hand and seemed nice. It's like, okay, well, you don't have to work with her. Like, that's just a totally different kind of thing. Huge. Not even, comp- like, I don't understand why people are even saying that. It's just And, and I did see those defenses yeah, coming no, out of all people the time. being like, yeah, for sure. oh, well, she was very nice to me. Of course she's nice to you. No. <laughs> It, it's rare that the person you meet at the social function is, you know, screaming, yeah. screaming and berating you for not doing your job well enough, yeah, because or, or up to whatever standards been yikes. set. Um, but I think some of these stories that come out will be important. Um, I think they will serve as a feedback loop for uh, electoral district associations and for electors to perhaps reconsider the choice of who represents them in Ottawa. Definitely, I hope so. And I think when you have these people. Um, who are known to be abusive or awful? That gets it's an open they're open secrets on the hill, and I think that materially impacts their effectiveness as an MP. Yeah. No one wants to work with them. No one wants to sit beside them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, the people they have working for them leave. They can't do their jobs effectively. It, that, consti- affects, that affects con- the representation you get as a constituent. Yeah. So sure. if someone is going through staffers every six weeks or less. Then you as a constituent, when you approach your MP to get services with an immigration issue or passport or whatever it is, you're not getting the best services available because that person hates their jobs, you know, is fearing for their day-to-day work and has only been in their position for, you know, days and there's no institutional knowledge and there's no, like... It's just all kinds of bad. Yeah, it becomes very toxic and bad and I think constituents should be informed yeah. Materially as to whether or not their MP is, you know, a competent human being. Yep, I agree. So. Um, there's also a piece that came out this week about uh, Rick Dykstra, who was a former conservative MP, then a PC party president, uh, who ran in a nomination actually last year against and lost to 
Uh, Sam Osterhoff, now the uh, MPP for West Niagara Glenbrook or something along those lines. Uh, sorry if I've mispronounced your your rural town and writing. Uh, I don't think it's that rural. It's like just outside of the GTA. Isn't yeah. it? Like hugging, hugging Niagara. Yeah, it is. Um, but yes. Um, so at any rate, Rick Dykstra, uh, in the context of the 2015 federal election, it came out within the party. That he had faced allegations of sexual harassment um, in the last couple of years, and the party had to debate whether or not to drop him as a candidate. Yeah, so what you're referring to was mostly a McLean's article that was published over the weekend. Yes. Um, that effectively got internal emails, I wonder from who. Hmm. Um, that was a conversation between three senior conservative officials, um, or Par, like yeah, party camp, campaign, le- campaign yes. leaders, yeah. um, senior staff, I guess, of the party. Uh, namely, Ray Novak, uh, Jenny Byrne, and Guy Jorno. Guy Jorno. Yeah. Um, who are basically the three most senior people in the campaign. At yes. The Ray Novak being the chief of staff, Guy Jorno being not the chief of staff. I don't know actually what his formal role was. Uh, no, he hadn't been chief of staff for a while. Um, I don't know exactly how the positions worked out because they yeah, amend, guess, they amend them just before I elections. I suppose it's really beside the point. Slash during elections. But all for all intents and purposes, all equally senior officials. Yes. Um, and so it was a conversation in the emails between uh, those three individuals regarding, you know, the Dykstra situation as well as the peeing in the cup of some... Ah, yes. The cup pisser in Toronto somewhere. Some random Jerry, candidate. Jerry something? I forget his name. I have no idea what his anyway, name Anyway, that was, that was quite... A, it emerged and there was an episode of CBC Marketplace where this guy who owned a sort of contracting company had uh, peed in a cup in someone's sink. I'm, I'm sure everyone listening to this podcast... <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. ...is intimately familiar <laughs> with, with the, the stories... The sink pisser, yeah. Of, ...of the cup pee man. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> how could you well, not if you Well, if you are the 1% of people who are unaware of this, do yourself a favor and look into it, because it is a wonderful a- story. Actually, Laurent, would you like to give us a play-by-play of the video, please, to <laughs> describe exactly what he did with the cup? Well, uh, he pissed in it. Um, so all of this is sort of off track from, I, from the actual story. If, if you don't like listening to us get off track, like this is not the podcast <laughs> for you. So the actual story um, is sort of the details of the email sent around the Dykstra case, um, in which Jenny takes a very hard line for dropping Dykstra, um, and Jorno and Novak are a little more... Yeah. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Reticent? Per- yeah, perhaps reticent say, about you it. You say that Jorno was reluctant to deliver. Um, it's not delivered. Uh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Carry on. Um, a little more hesitant, reticent, um, and sort of it has it has sparked a, a conversation about, you know, the proper reasons for dropping people. That is to say, you can drop. Uh, a candidate for effectively no reason. Yes. A uh, little as bit. You, as people often do. As they often do. It, there was that guy in Newfoundland that was dropped for like rap genius annotations and like some other stuff. Like, it however, just, it's a little harder to do. If and it's a, a sitting MP. A little more complicated, yeah. yeah, for a sitting MP who's been around for a while. Yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, it's an interesting piece. It's certainly a fascinating look at what's behind the party or what, what sort of happens behind closed doors. Um, I think that's my comment on it. What do you have anything to add? I I thought Jenny Burns' sign off was was very uh, Jenny Burns. I hope you sleep at night. Is, yeah, is it's that... like I, we've dropped people for less. I hope you can sleep well at night. So it's pretty striking. Let me give a tiny bit of background on Jenny Byrne here. Yeah, she's a fascinating figure. Um, so Jenny Byrne was for a very long time one of the time, most feared people in Ottawa. I think it's fair to say. Yes, I think that's fair. I think I once read a profile of Jenny Byrne that had a description of the seal clubbing tool that she hung. <laughs> yes, behind her I desk. Think I read the same one. Yeah, um, a hack pick is what it's called. Actually. Is, is yeah. that what it is? I had no idea. <laughs> of course, you would know that. Um, she, so she was a, a high-level conservative staffer um, who, you know, significantly influenced uh, conservative party strategy throughout yeah. several elections. She was campaign chair um, at several points. In the, in the, in the 2015 election. election. And I believe the first woman to be a campaign chair of any federal party. or Well, because I think um, 
Katie Telford and Anne McGrath were respectively the Liberal and NDP counterparts, but that was actually a fascinating election, which all three campaign yeah. chairs were women. I believe that was the first time there had been a woman campaign chair, period. I think. I might be wrong, but I think that's correct. Per- so someone correct us on that if we are wrong. Yeah, perhaps. I mean, At any rate, if, it was certainly unprecedented to have all three. If if her position in the 2015 election wasn't campaign, I, I don't it was know. Campaign like, I, I see a lot of these positions as it, effectively it, the same thing. Yeah, but it, it was um, formally campaign chair in 2015. It, it likely would have been something yeah. it was, e- um, equally senior in yeah. years prior. Yeah. Um, which is to say that, you know, in the elections that we won, um, she was she was heralded as, you know, brilliant, et cetera, et cetera. And then when you lose the 2015 election, of course, the, the finger pointing goes around. What's the, what's the phrase? Of fought, success is many fathers, but failure is always an orphan. Indeed. Indeed. Um, and so, you know, Jenny's a, a fascinating figure and one that everyone in Ottawa knows about. And so people outside the bubble should perhaps are less familiar with her, but is an equally important figure to perhaps any cabinet minister in sort yeah, of re- recent history. I would agree with that. She was in PMO and like just a very, very senior conservative official for basically the entire Harper government. Yeah. Very, and very, yeah. very significant. Not someone out of, like, a political family or anything, just an activist who really, like, went up through the ranks and, you know. Uh, I have a lot of respect for Jenny Byrne, despite, you know, like, I've heard, speaking of difficult managers, I've heard she's actually fairly difficult. Uh, and uh, I, I, adjectives I've heard are terrifying and uh, similar things, which, you know, like... I, I like I said I have a lot of respect for her either way despite what we just said with you know bad managers and everything I think it's her accomplishments are really really impressive but there you go um, and that brings us to the third person this week which uh, was Regina Louvain MP Aaron Weir who is uh, this is kind of a complicated one because it's a little unclear what's going on um, the well I mean okay I should rephrase that uh, he is not suspended from caucus but he is suspended from caucus duties from the NDP caucus. Uh, while there is a third-party investigation of sort of vague allegations made. So I guess they'll get to the bottom of it and investigate. But in the meantime, he is suspended from caucus duties. So I, I guess there's a fourth one we should add on here. Um, so between Elizabeth May, Aaron Weir, uh, the Dykstra story, which sort of, you know, it's just more details on a story that broke several weeks ago. Um, there's also been a PMO staffer. Oh, yes, um, right. Claude Gagnon, I believe is his name. Yeah, among the liberals. He's a PMO deputy director of operations. Which is pretty senior. Um, fairly senior, important role, um, has been, was previously suspended with pay pending an investigation and has now been just yes. booted entirely. As someone's pointed out, this is likely the same investigative process that Kent Harrow will receive. Yeah, there's not, there's not a lot of details around this and, you know, this is the, dis- this is a discussion to have around transparency, yes. um, when MPs, or when MPs, uh, I'm thinking in particular of Kathleen Wynne here, called yeah. for you know transparency after the Patrick Brown instances, and yet yeah. you have parties often launch into their own less than transparent internal yes. investigative processes. Indeed, we don't know the nature of the allegations in this instance, or we, with or any of the details. Yeah. Um. So I think there is. I think you know, he's like questions there, there are like to be Facebook asked. messages that have emerged. Po- possibly uh, that, that, that's been reported okay yeah yeah in, sorry in which case in the Gagnon case in the Gagnon case yeah. okay um but all, all of this is to say that you know none of the parties in my opinion have been I, I mean that transparent when they don't have to be that when it's an internal process and internal allegations they're more yes. than happy to keep it internal well this is really the case for an independent judiciary isn't it because when you have a party that is fundamentally interested in the result of an investigation, the investigation is going to be affected by that. And in fact, this is a great transition to um, what we we're going to talk about next anyway, which is... Um, How to make the courts less independent? <laughs> not quite. Um, but there have been two leadership races in the in the provinces in the last couple of weeks. Um, Saskatchewan has... Or members of the Saskatchewan party have elected a new leader of the Saskatchewan party and consequently a new premier of the province, Scott Moe. Um, Scott Moe is former environment minister. He represents the riding of Roster and Shelbrook out to northwest of Saskatoon and fairly, fairly rural riding. Uh, and he was endorsed by most of caucus uh, going into the leadership race and also um, won on the fifth ballot by a fairly thin margin uh, against Alana Koch, who was the cabinet secretary, which is the equivalent of the clerk of the Privy Council. Uh, so that was an unusual candidacy in the sense that usually you do not have senior bureaucrats running to be premier. 
Um, though she came quite close, so good for her. Um, Scott Moe is, by all accounts, fairly fairly conservative, uh, very, very anti-carbon tax, wants to really stick to the feds on this. Uh, so I think very much a continuity candidate rather than a change one uh, with Brad Wall. So we will see what happens. I think he's much less charismatic than Brywall, and really charisma was his greatest asset as a politician. So we will see what comes of that. I think the NDP has a lot of opportunities to pick up there, and they actually have their own leadership race, including in several weeks. To tie back to what I was just talking about, however, um, there was a perceived irregularity where there were over 2,000 spoiled ballots in the Saskatchewan Party leadership race. And some people on Saskatchewan politics Twitter uh, we're saying that, oh, you know, they should investigate this. And the thing is, with any sort of thing with irregularities around party leadership races or anything, ultimately the party's incentive is really just to bury it and move on. Uh, they, You know, once you've announced a leader, you're like, it's very hard to put that particular cat back in the bag. And it makes your party look amateurish. It makes it look corrupt. It makes it look bad. So ultimately what parties want is they want everyone to uh, get in line and, and accept the results. So... Uh, when we're talking about, you know, investigations of, of these sorts conducted by parties, ultimately their interest is to have things be as little disrupted as possible and not necessarily to arrive at a full accounting of the truth. So any disappointed Saskatchewan party uh, partisans, I, I hate to inform you that nothing will ever come of, of this. I don't think it's going to go anywhere because ultimately the party's interest at this point is to keep... Uh, especially if you're in power, is just to keep the train moving. So this brings me to sort of the, the perennial conversation around who runs elections and why are there often these irregularities and things yes. like this. In the 2015 election, I remember reading on Reddit uh, Reddit threads, and I, I was working as a, uh, as a sort of employee, not necessarily an employee, but as, as a volunteer on a campaign and was sort of very engaged in the 2015 election and you look on reddit and you see people talking about like oh like i went to the polling booth and like i had this problem this problem like oh the conservative government is rigging it against it's is rigging it against the people um and the reality of every single election in canada and other place in the world when it comes to these you know xyz irregularities 98 percent of the time it is because the people running campaigns and the people running elections yeah. are not professionals. Right. They are students and seniors are yeah. the two category of people that typically are paid to man vote uh, polling stations. Yeah. And they receive less than 24 hours of training. And the um, criteria on IDing and the criteria on who can be behind the polling, uh, sort of the, the shield in front of the ballots and... Yeah. and how you fill out your ballot can can be different between the municipal, federal, and provincial elections. As and often well as you have the same people working for the different election level agencies because Correct. they it's... have somewhat transferable skill and they like volunteering. Yeah, and, so you making you, the however like you know fifteen dollars an hour or whatever. You, it is. you have it on your resume. You get you know your day and a half of employment. You make a couple hundred bucks. Um, but all of this to say is democracy is not a full-time job in Canada. Yeah, which is you know, um, not, not necessarily a bad thing. It is an incredibly part-time job. Yes. Um, Once the, every four years. The, the most part-time of part-time jobs. Yeah. And so there are often a lot of problems with it. And I think the people who jump on that to say that, you know, to, to allege broader conspiracies yeah. fundamentally don't understand no, the, the realities of how, how it works. Especially in the case of spoiled ballots, especially in anything with a ranked ballot or you know, more complicated ballot than put one X on it, X of the name of the person you like, people are going to screw it up. And people screw those up too, God knows. Like, <laughs> it's, uh, you'd be astonished the, the things the, people put on ballots. The but. simplest of ballots, the click X or uh, put an X here. So I, I remember working the um, 2012, I think it was 2012 Alberta provincial election, um, which was a little complicated because Alberta was electing uh, a senator. That's right. Um, and so I, if I if I remember correctly, there were two ballots. There was the ballot for the federal or for the provincial MLA, and there was the second ballot for the senator. And this was confusing as hell to people. And so they got instructions, and the Senate one, uh, you actually had to select two people. And so I think oh, you, you had to do a, a sort of a rudimentary ranking of some sort. And this just threw off so many ballots because people got confused between which ballot you were supposed to do ranking on and X, Y, Z. To be honest, and... it, to me, it is really, really, really baffling how people can screw this up when the instructions are right in front of them. But many people manage. 
So there you go. Yeah. Uh, the other provincial leadership election, unless you have something to add on that. No, my just to wrap it into one final cohesive thesis is to say that anytime you see, you know, spoiled ballots or irregularities, this happens every single time. Yeah. And there should be an audit process. And this is why I have much more confidence in the provincial elections agencies, because their interest is just to see due process and the whole thing play out. Parties really don't have that incentive in the same way. Um, so the other the other case or the other provincial leadership election is uh, the province of British Columbia has a new leader of the official opposition in John, no, Andrew Wilkinson of the BC Wilkinsons. Uh, John Wilkinson is... Uh, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure they're I don't related. Think I don't think they're related. Uh, to clarify my confusion, John, John, John Wilkinson is the... Um, Parliamentary secretary to uh, Catherine McKenna. Yes. Uh, so a liberal federal MP rather than a provincial liberal MLA. Okay. Correct. Andrew Wilkinson has, has also won his party's leadership on the fifth ballot in a very tightly contested race against a woman uh, who came from outside the caucus. So Being Diane Watts. Neat parallels there. Who is a federal MP from Surrey and in fact was replaced by a liberal there. Um, so I guess that did not work out for Diane Watts, unfortunately. Um, knowing next to nothing about Mr. Wilkinson, I will make one remark, and that is to say, um, both BC and Saskatchewan have. God damn it! <laughs> you from next to there? How do you? <laughs> you know, we never completed the road. Um, have parties that represent both sort of the center and the right? Yeah. Um, Wilkinson. Uh, apparently is more to the center, has a history of donating to the Liberal Party, yeah. so likely identifies himself as a big, uh, as a capital L Liberal. Yeah, there, there is a lot of that in the BC Liberal Party, yeah. Um, as opposed to... Oh, the Saskatchewan Party? Mo, I, yeah. who is more on the... If I, if I understand I, correctly, he, is, the, the, he would be a, a big C conservative. Yes. The Saskatchewan Party has not in any real way been a coalition party in the better part of 10 years. Uh, what, wasn't Coat Coke... Coke wasn't she I mean, effectively a federal liberal? No, I don't think so. I she was more centrist than many of the other candidates, but that's not really saying much. There was a pretty right wing bunch. Gord Wyant, I believe, was the only one who had a history of federal liberal affiliation, and he gave it up actually to participate in the leadership race because the liberals are not popular with Saskatchewan Party members and the Saskatchewan Party universe of voters. Uh, there's a reason the federal liberals makes, don't makes really sense. win a lot of seats in Saskatchewan. It's because they're unpopular there. Um, wow, this kind of analysis, folks, you can... Uh, uh, but yeah, no, I, I really... like the, the Saskatchewan Party likes to pitch itself as, you know, a sort of free enterprise coalition kind of thing in the same way the BC Liberals do. I don't think it's as real in their case. I think in, it, the BC Liberals do have a real give and take between sort of conservative and liberal wings. The Saskatchewan Party, for all intents and purposes, has been a conservative party, Um I mean, really, since, like, the early 2000s. Uh, Elwin Hermanson was their first leader who was quite conservative himself. Many of the liberal MLAs who defected to the Saskatchewan Party from the Liberals sort of drained out over the years. The, the Rob Norrises of the world, um, who, wow, that's a, that, that's a deep cut there for those of you listening to Saskatchewan, in Saskatchewan, um, have all kind of left. So it, it's not really a coalition party in any meaningful way anymore. It's just a conservative party, though they still sort of like the branding. Yes? Good. Good, yeah. Now you guys have managed to take it over from the inside. Good job. You drove out all the liberals. Uh, so a few caucus updates from, from the federal parliament this week as well. Uh, first is the NDP critic shuffle. Uh, Ruth Ellen Brousseau, uh, who is still somehow best known as, as Vegas Girl from uh, her surprise election in 2011 when she was in Las Vegas for much of the election. It's hard, hard to shake that title. Yes, out. I mean, it's a pretty good story. But then uh, she actually was one of the few Quebec MPs to keep her seat, which is in, in rural Quebec. Actually, some of my family lives out there. Um, and uh, despite her, you know, not being from Quebec, her French is not her first language, so she's, her French is now perfectly fluent. Um, and she's acquired a reputation as a really good constituency MP, and people re-elected her, which was a rare feat in Quebec. We lost a lot of very good MPs. Um, and we kept a lot of very good MPs too, but uh, she was one of the ones to, to make that cut, which was uh, definitely the odds were against her, so good on her. And since then, she has actually been named uh, the House Leader this week, or actually last Friday, um, which is a, it's a fairly big accomplishment. That's the legislative stick handler of caucus. And actually, now it's, we have all women House Leaders. I was going to say, Bergen yes. is still the Conservative House Leader. Yeah, that's correct. And she, she sits across from Bardish. Yep. Um, so does, yeah, now so all women. All women, uh, which is pretty cool. Um... 
there have also been some critic shuffles. Um, notably, um, Nathan Cullen is no longer the uh, ethics and democratic reform critic. He is now the BC liaison and seems to want to turn that role into sort of uh, outreach and campaign, similar to what he did as democratic reform critic, actually. So that'll be pretty interesting. Um, the Quebec folks have taken on energy and the environment. So the, the two senior most um, and high profile apart from Ruth Elmbrosso. Uh, Guy Caron and Alexandre Boris have taken on energy and uh, the environment. Uh, Charlie because Angus, they, go, they go hand in hand. They do, yes. And it's to Quebec, which is actually interesting if you're sort of doing amateur criminology of like, this is the, the, the sort of faction in Canadian energy politics that the NDP is aligning itself with at the federal level. Uh, Charlie Angus has taken on the ethics portfolio, a portfolio he's held before um, during the Senate scandal and, and like back then during the Conservative government in their official opposition. Uh, any other major ones? That was pretty much the big moves. There are a couple couple smaller ones. Uh, Tracy Ramsey notably has kept the trade portfolio, which I think she has been fantastic in and has been uh, really able to articulate a coherent critique of the sort of ongoing trade negotiations, um, which is, you know, for the NDP, uh, something of a novelty. So that's good for her. Uh, and that, that pretty much concludes uh, the NDP side of things. Do you have a conservative caucus update? Yeah, so I think the only one um, that I would add in, the only one I can think of, uh, was sort of late at night. Scott Reed was shuffled out of his um, position as Democratic Reform de- Minister, a sh- shadow, shadow Minister. minister yes. I, I, I suspect we are still doing that. Yes, you are. Um, in exchange for Blake Richards, who's uh, MP for Banff Airdrie, uh, another good Alberta boy, or not that. Not that Scott is neither good nor an Alberta boy, but <laughs> yes. uh, that, was, that was in reference to myself. Um, so Scott shuffling and drop from the shadow cabinet. The shadow cabinet has uh, it's been announced has nothing to do with misconduct allegations of any sort. That would surprise me. The man um, is, is very much married to the job. I suspect he's one of the least horny people on the hill. <laughs> good for him. I think that's a good thing. Um, it might be in relation to um, his decision. I think we covered this previously. We have discussed it, yes. Um, to do sort of a citizen's referendum on C45 uh, being the Cannabis Act or a householder. Yes. On what might have been a whipped vote. I, I think, I think that it was, yes. This was uh, several months ago now, yes. but it's sort of, you know, the first time to shuffle the cabinet. Yes. Although the timing is a little bit weird, sort of midweek when you could have done this over the break. So who knows? I, uh, that's true. But on the other hand, like, I think when you do vote against the whip, and I think I'm pretty sure C45 was a whip vote. If you look at, like, I think he is literally the only conservative vote. He, I, I, can, I can confirm that he was the only yeah. conservative so vote. So when that it. happens, I think it's pretty fair to assume it was a whip vote. And it would not surprise me to see that this was the consequence for his voting against the party. Interesting to know in his vote against it, I, I, we may have discussed this previously, um, but that he did remark that he was personally against the legislation, but that because he'd thrown it out to his constituents, that yep. he was going to respect their, uh, is, their I mean, choice. If you're going to get out there and, and take a consultative referendum, you may as well respect the results. Absolutely. And, and perhaps the PEI liberals could take a lesson from that. So something, uh, uh, something to look forward to, although the Democratic reform, you know, portfolio is going to be a lot more quiet in the coming year yeah there's not as much on the line right now um so. unless the liberals suddenly decide to reopen uh yeah i see that as unlikely he's actually he, that's another little thing this week is, is trudeau pretty much just said like oh i was never even open to proportional representation which i think you know is belied by looking at the platform or listening to him talk at any point in the you know, strongly last strongly recommend yeah. the paul, paul, paul wells, wells yes yeah. where he just eviscerates him it on is it. very good Highly recommend the read. I'll see if I can find it for the notes, but unless I forget, which is very likely. Probably. Yeah, I usually do. Are we off to our re- you know regularly occurring segment that about is now occurring private for the first time? Yeah. No, second time. Second private time? members. Oh yeah, bills? that's true. Okay. Yes, we are, and it's the um, it's C three seventy one, an act respecting the prevention of radicalization through foreign funding and making related amendments to the Income Tax Act. Is there sort of a, a whippy short title? Not. I mean, I call it the Nasheed Illegalization Act. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it is uh, introduced by our friend Mr. Tony Clement. Probably the only MP you can book a meeting with over Snapchat. That is almost certainly true. <laughs> that will probably change in the next election um, if Jagmeet wins a seat. Uh, but <laughs> he will. He will. Um 
So the, I will, I'll just read out the summary of, of the bill here rather than go through line by line, but this enactment makes it an offense for a religious, cultural, or educational institution to accept money or other valuable consideration from a foreign state if the governor and council is satisfied that there are reasonable grounds to believe that the foreign state promotes religious intolerance, subjects its citizens to torture or other cruel punishment, or engages in activities that support radicalization. Institutions are also prohibited from accepting money or other valuable consideration from entities and individuals that have certain links to such a foreign state. In addition, the enact enactment makes related amendments to the Income Tax Act to provide that the acceptance of money or other valuable consideration in contravention of the Prevention of Radicalization through Foreign Funding Act is a ground on which the Minister of National Revenue may refuse or revoke the status of registered charity or association. So essentially what this does is it allows the government, as the order in council, so it's a cabinet, um, to declare that an entity is one of you know an oppressive or otherwise undesirable organization, and that funding from that entity or an entity linked to that state entity is not going to be allowed to be given to any sort of religious, cultural, educational institutions, so charities, media organizations, I presume, uh, that sort of thing, um, which has some interesting ramifications. Attend, you're burning to speak here. Burning to speak. Um, no, I, I think what I was just going to say is that it, it's obviously come to light, um, and this often doesn't make major media attention because I think everyone expects that it's happening is that certain states fund religious institutions the Saudis are well known to do this Iranians well, well, um, are well known to fund you know um, people who support their ideas in foreign states yes I, I think it, it well, you know and famously uh, in under the Obama administration uh, one of his foreign policy advisors talked of the blob Ben Rhodes Ben Rhodes yes thank you uh, speaking of the sort of like constellation of well-funded foreign policy study institutions that are realistically very or started uh, in large part through money from the Saudis and the Gulf states, which is in large part why there is a long-standing strategic orientation between the U.S. and the Gulf states. Um, I'm pretty meh about this. I know you don't like uh, the about, about this overall thesis. Um, I, I think I think it's worth noting that this happens, and the difference between this and sort of what we have already is that right now some of these pr uh, provisions exist, but it's largely linked to designating uh, a terrorist entity, yeah, or so or, a, more... or a state sponsor of terror, yeah. Um, so this for instance, below that. under this bill, let's look at Chechnya. Uh, Chechnya, you know, engages in some of the things that would fall under the bill. Yeah, uh, let me just find the list. Subjecting its citizens to torture, other cruel and punishment, engaged in activities that support radicalization. Yeah. I think, it, I think it'd be pretty easy to list Chechnya and therefore Russia. As a subnational entity, could you, though? Well, yeah. As a, as a, what's effectively a provincial government to a federal government, I, I think it would certainly. Yeah, it might be that, that it would fall under the foreign state. I guess someone should ask um, him about this in committee if it makes it that far. Or or you could say that, you know, the Russian federal government supports the Chechen government to such an extent that it de facto is doing those uh, actions itself. Okay. Um, so I, I think it's sort of a, a half measure from uh, what we currently have, sort of a halfway there. Yes. Let's let's start to ramp up some punishments and some consequences. Yeah. Um, so fairly supportive. Um, I'd note the language of the text makes an order in council decision, which yes. effectively makes it a decision of cabinet. So a political decision. Yes. Yeah. So a, ultimately, a what, very political decision. What that means is that Saudi Arabia will never be on this list, and Iran likely will be on day one. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, you have to look at the governments that I think would be considered for this very quickly. Yeah. Um, Iran, Russia, China. So yeah, let's let's talk about Russia a little bit and expand expand this to the United States. Um, what's it? I think it was you I was talking about uh, with the other week about RT losing its credentials. Yeah, I believe. So we were speaking about this. Russia today losing its credentials as an White accredited House, House press gallery. Yeah, I yeah. think it was. I think it was a Congress accredited. Yeah. It was the House um, Representatives press gallery. Yeah. Media. Yeah sort of organization. Yeah. And the justification for them losing their credentials was that they were falling under the registration of yeah, the, it was Foreign a, Entities Act or whatever, whatever was, the American Act is. It was act a bill is. that was passed in the 30s under the Roosevelt administration basically to make it so that paid Nazi sympathizers in the U.S. would have to register as agents of the Nazi government to make it unpalatable for them to do their work. 
Um, it, that was the original intent behind that bill. I mean, it has since it has since become no, a lot sure. more yeah, yeah. than that. This I'm just is, talking about the historical context for the bill. This is, of course, what everyone's favorite uh, national security advisor has been dinged with. Ah, um, of course. For, for the, his work with the Turkish government. Yes. Um, but sort of the conversation that's happening in the United States around RT losing it is that why is RT losing their... Um, why is RT falling under this act and Al Jazeera isn't? Right. Because Al Jazeera is obviously funded in large part by the Qatari government. Why is it falling under this act and RT isn't? Yep. What level of propaganda? It's sort of wishy-washy. Yeah. And so that, of course, becomes would become a similar question if this act were to be implemented. Yeah. So, I mean, I think conservatives like to make lists of people they don't like. That's, like, very much a tendency they have. You're on my list. I know. <laughs> I actually, I, I do have a good list. Yeah, but th- th- it really is, like, to, to make statutory the tendency of, to, to have enemies lists, I think, is a... Is a... Radio DJs, <laughs> condo board officials, and student politicians. That's, yeah, Terrence's top three. Have we ever yeah. talked about that on the no. show? Oh, we haven't? We should sometime. Um, but, yeah, I personally, like, I... I sort of struggle to see the real value out of this and knowing that it'll be used hypocritically <sighs> is not a feather in its cap i think but that's not really the act's fault i guess i, I mean i think the value add is that it gives the government the flexibility to start choking off sources of funding that i think broader canadian society would agree should be denied but like what's an example of like why this bill is needed i think like because maybe Tony there, there are mind, religious but... entities in canada that are very, very extreme yeah. being funded by these governments. Yeah, I guess, and, I, guess and, I would want to see the, the body of evidence, but like, if that is in fact the case, then I could see my way to it, I suppose. But. And I, th- I think that is the sort of thing that is targeting, uh, that this is targeting. I like To stick on the Saudis as an example, I, I don't think it's news to anyone that the Saudis no. um, sort of fund religious extremism throughout the world i totally totally agree with that i think everyone knows that but the problem is that i really sincerely believe that this act would never be applied to the saudis so that from there i wonder where do you well right well okay the saudis there aren't like north korean juche societies (laughs) like in you know like vanier or you know like it's just not like a phenomenon that exists well yeah north korea is obviously the exception but a lot of i mean even even the Chinese. I think the Chinese would be the other question. Yeah, but who are they funding, right? Like, that's what sort of, like, cultural institutions in Canada or, like, other sort of, like, educational, cultural charities, whatever, are being funded to, like, Chinese state-linked entities. And that's what, like, that's the causality I'm not seeing here. I think there are some of those. I mean, like, you, you may well think I'm, that. I'm trying but... to remember. There's certainly been some pieces about, you know, Chinese of or not, not There's officials, There's a lot of connections but... in the business world. But of right? people but harassing, not... of like Chinese government institutions and linked figures harassing sort of political. I mean, I, 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 I personally, to... I see this connection as much stronger in the business and explicitly political circles than in the, the cultural sort of like and religious cultural cultural. religious space. I, I really yeah. just don't see that connection as as pronounced, but. Whatever, I guess Tony Clement will talk about it in the future, and we may want to revisit this if it's. I a mean, topic of will or let's talk about the the bill itself. Let, let's actually bridge back out of our foreign policy discussion. Okay. Um, to what stage is the bill at? It is uh, at first reading, so, so it's, ba- barely introduced. So it was introduced. Should be a second reading. This is the first reading copy of the bill, likely. Yes. Uh, so it was introduced October 17th. First reading is always just a cursory thing. It's probably sitting at second reading, uh, never to be seen again. Yeah, that, that's what happens with the vast, vast, vast majority of private members' bills is they are introduced and then never really see the light of day. Uh, but we will see. In all of us command. In, in all of us command, indeed. And yes, that's right. The national anthem was finally changed this week. There's, the there is an example of a private member's bill that has made it, you know. Yes. Uh, through multiple sessions of parliament has finally been adopted yeah well yeah that's uh that has finally happened in fact i think that will that will do it for us this week apart from one final thing the quick, beer review quick beer review quick beer review yeah well we're almost you know, an hour here so we had two beers today during the course of the recording we had a uh, small details a belgian ipa from dominion city which is one of our favorite breweries i think i'm comfortable saying yeah and uh duchesse de bourgogne from I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce that. Uh, you can look a, it up. A Belgian brewery. Yeah. Uh, so the first beer, Belgian IPA, I thought very good. Uh, very, very crisp. Uh, a little more citrusy than your West Coast IPA, but still pretty hoppy. I'd say much hoppier than many of Dominion City's other offerings. 
Uh-huh. I mean, Dominion City tends to make a lot of IPAs. Um, this None is... very hoppy, though. Yeah. Not to not in my recollection. I'd say about as hoppy as this one. I, I think this is actually pretty average for their, their okay. level of hops. Um, they have a few more. Finally, that I, something I, I we need... disagree on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that, I, that I need to try out. And then our second one is Duchess de Bungung. Uh, um, which is a sour Flemish red ale or something along those lines. It what, what would you say? Balsamic it reminds vinegar. You of? It's pure balsamic vinegar. I find it really weird. Etienne, when pouring this, said, uh, "This is like a 90-10 love it or hate it." And I was like, "Oh, so like ninety percent of people love it, and ten percent of people really can't stand it." And he was like, "No, other way around." The, um, pe- the people who love it really love it, though. I mean, I don't hate it. Would I ever order it again? Probably not. It's really, really weird. I'd certainly recommend trying it once because it is very unique. Uh, it is like sour. It is a sour red beer with a very strong balsamic vinegar taste. I suppose if you can imagine that, that's uh, yeah. It's, it's really something. Pretty much on point. I, I think the fact that it's it seemingly has such a niche niche taste, but it's carried so commercially by the LCBO, and that it's available pretty much everywhere. You know, fine beers are sold in Ontario. Is yeah. it's sort of just interesting from a market yeah. perspective. Definitely give it a shot. Uh, but yeah, I, I would recommend. It's like three bucks a bottle, so you know it's not yeah. out of reach for anyone. And I've seen uh, you know some of the top brewers in the world refer to this as their favorite beer. So they would hipsters. Uh, so that'll do it for us this week. Uh, you can you can find us wherever fine podcasts are sold and distributed uh, according to central planning. Uh, which is the, obviously the best. Uh, you yeah, can of course. leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It's, of course, very appreciated. In fact, we Not we me. made a new and noteworthy on iTunes this week. Here, here. So that that's kind of cool for us. Um, so definitely leave us a review if you can. Follow us on Twitter, at Pod. And uh, otherwise, we will see you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>